so, hello, this is uh, the Cosmic Shambles, probably the final uh, New Zealand Cosmic Shambles uh, in terms of questions that we left over from shows. These questions were ones that we didn't manage to do on stage in Wellington, and the first question is for Professor Lucy Green, Dr Lucy Green on Twitter, due to uh, problems of being able to change their name, isn't it? <laughs> I just haven't updated yet. Oh, it's too much work, really, isn't it? Really, is it? Because I know Alice Roberts, she's still Dr Alice Roberts. Yeah. No, she's changed it. Oh, I saw it the other day, yeah. Um, so she's updated it to something else, but it's, I can't remember what it is now. Oh, so it's possible. I, I... Yeah. Anyway, that was the question. The question was, is the aurora related to predictable from solar activity? Oh, uh, so the, the aurora is related to solar activity. So in the main, it's related to these eruptions from the sun that we call coronal mass ejections. And that basically sends out magnetic field and electrically charged gas into the solar system. And when that material and magnetic field reaches the Earth's magnetic field, it sets up this series of events that leads to the aurora. So in that sense, yes, if you can predict solar activity, then you can predict the aurora. Luckily, at the moment, we can see the activity a few days before it arrives at us. So in that sense, yes, we can give a couple of days prediction. Not that accurate, maybe, but we can say, keep an eye on things, and if you have a clear night, go out and have a look. Uh, I've realised that all of these got mixed up with ones that were actually asked on stage, so I can answer, are the glowing bacteria the same as the ones in glowworm poo, which is glowing bacteria shown by Susie Wilde, and actually glowworm poo doesn't glow. That was her answer. Uh, you looked so disappointed when you said that. Uh, let's, it, was, it was, it is kind of disappointing. I mean, it's obvious in one way, but in another way, glowing poo, I suppose in terms of, from an evolutionary perspective, glowing poo's no great advantage. It could it? be a distraction, though. There's a, there's a brilliant thing that I've filmed with, which is a little, um, little marine creature, it's very small, that makes its own bioluminescence for other reasons. But if a bigger fish comes along and eats it, it spews out all the bioluminescence it's got. And basically, the other fish kind of coughs it up, vomits it up. It's extremely funny. And the reason that the other fish does it is that the light will attract bigger predators that might get it. So, so it basically vomits up, and the bioluminescence streams out of its gills, and the little thing kind of swims off. And the other, the other fish is coughing itself backwards. It's extremely funny. That sounds really interesting. Well, isn't nature entertaining? Yeah. It's taken all that time <laughs> for mutation, heredity, and natural selection to manage to vomit itself inside out. Uh, this question from Michelle Dickinson, who's with us as well, and this, uh, do you have any cool and fun experiments for a six-year-old? I have an inkling you may well have some for them, and uh, if it could include also a 41-year-old, but I think what experiments that are fun for a six-year-old won't also be fun for a 41-year-old. There are so many experiments that you can do, it sort of depends on what you want to look at. My favourite experiments are jellied eggs. You take an egg... Um, you put it in white vinegar for about well three days and you watch it over time and then it becomes a bouncy ball and then you just bounce it around because the shell dissolves because it's an acidic vinegar and the shell is calcium carbonate and it dissolves the shell but it leaves the internal membrane to hold the egg together and then you've got this egg that's still jelly-like um, and it, you can use it as a bouncy ball. One of my favourite ones, easy to do, kitchen ingredients and you make a bouncy ball out of an egg and you can eat it afterwards but it's disgusting. Um, but what if you kind want of flavour? It's the... pure vinegar, acidic, but it's it's quite interesting. So you say disgusting. In well. Britain, we say pub snack. <laughs> um, does uh, oh, now this one has been answered by you already, Matt? But I'm going to ask it again. Uh, um, Matt I didn't do well th- enough last time. This was about the flavour of pie. Oh yes. Now actually, I'm going to change the question because one of the questions was asked: uh, You use a pie to uh, get to pie. Correct. Uh, now, someone then asked, how many apples would you need to get to G? Yes. 
this morning we were talking about how many apple pies, though, might actually be a better kind of, you know, Newtonian pastry. Yeah, I mean, I think we decided afterwards, this was your idea, this was basically to drop the apple pie yeah. and have it break a series of laser beams. Yeah, yeah so you could trigger them and get the timing. And so you get the timing as yeah. it falls, and then it's a simple quadratic. And you solve that, and that would give you your acceleration due to gravity. And then, because I just take it as 9.8 metres per second per second in the calculation of the show, but to be a purist, I should derive that first and then uh, do the follow-on calculations. It does depend on the drag on the pie, though. You need a very big pie for the drag to be yeah, negligible or to do right. the vacuum, yeah. Would the drag be less at slower speeds? And the, the, so the drag coefficient is the same, but the... Um, so basically, the reason I know this is that I've, I've just you had... a lot of pies. I just <laughs> love pies. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I've got... Um, we've been measuring uh, drop drops falling in the lab and you can actually and the, and the nice way to do it is to get a strobe light so you, you you take one exposure and you see lots of little images of the thing and uh, so the effective gravity when you're not close to the terminal velocity the effective gravity stays the same the drag coefficient is basically the same because right. it's the same kind of physics so you could assume constant drag coefficient but it would be all right it would be quicker to do it, it would be quicker i don't know about but more a better way to do it would be to do it in, in a vacuum Michelle, because we're back on food, and you've already mentioned eggs, and obviously you do a lot of demos for kids as well. Uh, I mean, in terms of the importance of changing it from don't play with your food to play with your food. Always play with your food. What's your favourite, again, on top of the eggs, in, in terms of uh, something that people might actually be about to eat and put before a child, and the child can then play do a little bit it. of a science experiment? Well, there's always science. I mean, I, I'm always about play with your food. There are so, oh, goodness gracious, there are so many. So, I mean, we, eggs are my favourite. You can you can stand on eggs without them breaking and talk about, you know, the shape of the arch and the fact that ceramics, and that's why we make buildings out of concrete. Ceramics are very good in compression, but not in tension, so don't pull them apart. So it's an easy one. Oh, we do ones with, you can grow sugar crystals, which is really fun, dissolve sugar um, in water and then put a stick in there or a piece of string and watch the sugar crystal grow. And then if you want to eat it later on, you can eat it. You shouldn't really eat sugar, but if you want to, it's actually lovely. Um, and it takes about a week, so it's a good watch and grow experiment. Um, the longer you wait, the bigger your sugar crystal at the end, which is good. Oh, have you ever done that experiment involving putting the word good uh, in one uh, song of water and bad in another one? No, was that a homeopathic experiment? It's in, uh, it's in uh, what's it called, that rabbit hole film. Uh, what the bleep do we know? It is a remarkable uh, piece of pseudoscientific work. I used to be shown at my cinema once a month. They would deliberately put it on and say this is the worst documentary they believe to be made in the last 10 years. And we will continue to put it on once a month, every month. It's a bit like um, a similar thing where you have the white wine and you colour one red so that you interfere mm. with people's expectations of what the flavour will be. And they can't tell the difference, right? Wine experts mm -hmm. can't tell the difference. Yeah. Uh, oh, I've never even seen the it done experts. with a wine yeah. expert. I've seen it yeah. done with a French woman who expressed that she was really a good wine. And when she tried the white wine, she said, oh, yes, it's fresh and zingy and so on. And then she tried the coloured white wine, which is cheaper red wine. And she said, oh, yes, that's full-bodied. And, and like her whole language changed. See, I really wanted, because Brian Cox, when we go on tour, he, you know, he loves his wine. And he does not believe, neither he nor his Australian producer, believe that they will be caught out by shabby wine being disguised as expensive wine. They believe that they would immediately, oh, hang on, I'm not getting the taste of buttery mash. You should but, do the experiment because it, it, it consistently embarrasses wine experts. Yeah. That well, I'm definitely going to do it. When we're back in November, I'm going to... Like yeah. red food colouring in your pocket so that when you, or in a ring so you can just slip it in. Well, I could just swap the actual bottle of wine. Oh, you I'm could definitely going to do that. 
Heston Blumenthal does it live on stage, and it's really powerful because they're you know the audience is blindfolded who's coming up. But the other one that's quite fun to do is um, blindfold somebody and have two of the same things. You want something that's got a sweet and a salty taste. So I usually use dark chocolate that's got salted um, caramel in it. And then you play, so you blindfold the person, you make them taste these things, you don't tell them what it is, and then you play high-frequency pitched music to them once. And then you make them eat the thing that you're telling them is something different, but actually is exactly the same salted caramel chocolate. And then you play a low pitch. So you want to might play some nice uh, jazz piano sort of once, and then like trombone bass or a deep bass. Um, and the frequency that you hear actually interferes with how you perceive taste. And so you hear sweet, or you, when you hear light tones, you taste sweetness. And when you listen to lower frequencies, you taste deep saltiness. And so they'll think that the thing that they're eating is salty with their low frequency and sweet with a high frequency. And it's exactly the same. Works every time, and it's quite fun to look at how sound affects your taste buds. Matt, get me a tuba and some popcorn <laughs> now. I've got an experiment. Uh, we're also joined by Sean Hendy, and because you're a material scientist, I mean, again, I in terms of, we're talking about structure of eggs there. Yep. Do you, are, are there certain, or just things that people might have uh, around the house uh, that have access to in terms of looking how material science, how we can see it reflected in the objects around us? Well, yeah, I mean, Michelle was showing us some great experiments you can do with glass. Now, you won't necessarily want to do this up close, but, um, you know, experiments I've, I used to do with a, with a cricket ball, right, out in the backyard. Um, you know, you can see how different types of glass break with, 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 a, with a cricket ball. Um, not totally recommend it, but... but yeah, when I said it. things around the house, I didn't mean the window, <laughs> OK? Uh, <laughs> but, it, I mean, material science, it's one of those areas where, of course, you know, we are surrounded by its, its applications, and yet, in, in another way, I think it, it's, it doesn't seem to be that much in, in terms of the sciences that we do see talked about a great deal in public arenas in, in kind of mass communication. Yeah, it's kind of its infrastructure, in a way, right? But, when, you know, you think of... You go around your house today and think about how much of the materials are natural products, and how much of been heavily processed right? you can do a little essay of your kitchen um, an awful lot of stuff you know we're using an awful lot of, of more processed materials these days that have been engineered um, down to the atomic scale uh, you know all polymer materials um, polymer chemistry gives us an awful range of, of different types of materials that we can come up with how do you think uh, can you give me one way that you, you feel that graphene will change uh, society Right, so, so, I mean, graphene's got all sorts of uses. One of the most interesting things, particularly um, uh, if you're Australian, and you guys have been touring the, the dry continent, um, is that people have been looking at ways that they can um, desalinate water, right? So a lot of Australian cities have big, big desalination plants, and actually one of the applications of graphene, you put small holes in it, the sodium chloride crystals, the, the, the uh, ions, can't get through the pores, but the water molecules can go through the pores. So that's something that, that already has been tried by Australian scientists and potentially could make desalination uh, much cheaper. Um, Lucy, I've got a question for you. What is the most interesting piece of new sun information you have discovered in the last month? Just a little sound there. Someone flushed. Of Japanese horror films. That's the moment that the angry soul of a lost child appears. But nothing here, just water running, it turns out. If I don't appease the sun gods, then I'm in trouble. Um, the most interesting piece of information. So I'm interested in how magnetic fields evolve in the atmosphere of the sun. And I guess I'm interested in quite niche things to do with that. And I'm interested in how particular. Um, structures form in the magnetic field 
And so the way to sort of visualise what I'm interested in is a series of field lines that, that like, like people might have this in mind, you know, let's start with the bar magnet with the iron filings around it, and um, you see these arch-like shapes in the bar magnet revealed, and they're the lines of force in, in the magnetic field. But what I'm interested in are lines of force that sort of bundle together in a twisted structure like a rope, and, um, and, and <laughs> sorry, there's so many things I want to say, but I think I should probably not go through all of them. So one of, the, one of the interesting things we found recently was how these, information about how these fluctuates can form. But then we sort of use that information to do a side project around um, sunquakes, which are um, bursts of seismic activity that happen in the atmosphere of the sun. And we've been linking together how energy is um, extracted from these bundles of magnetic field um, to be converted into these um, sound wave, uh, energy and sound waves. And we sort of found that these flux waves can act as a sort of um, um, a focus, a magnetic lens to focus energy down into the lower atmosphere of the sun. So very, very niche, but um, it's the first time that we've sort of realised how the magnetic field might affect um, sun waves in that way. Next question is pretty much open to everyone. Uh, despite all the advance in knowledge to date, is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything still 42? So that's Toby Salomon. But I suppose what I'm going to add to that is if we find out why there is life and why there is a universe, does that actually change the meaning of our life? What will be, what would actually change the meaning itself? Because that, that seems to me that there are people, I sometimes read Stephen Hawking and, and, I, and I think it seems that he, in the way he writes, imagines that once we know, if for instance we find a unified theory, whatever it might be, that somehow changes the meaning of our existence. I, I like that question, the 42 example, because it implies the answer is deeply mathematical, and I, which I agree with. It's probably more complicated than a number. So, I mean, I would argue that if we do get that kind of fundamental understanding, it's going to be a very complicated equation or series of equations. And so I suspect when physicists finally go, we've cracked it, we've got the fundamental understanding of everything, it'll be so obscure and abstract and mathematical that most people are like, oh, that's interesting, but they won't have a grasp on it, or there's no way for it to process it to, have, to be able to have an impact on people's lives. It's the Feynman Nobel Prize thing again, isn't it? Going, uh, now you've discovered the meaning of life. Could you explain it to us in two minutes? If I could explain the meaning of life in two minutes, it wouldn't be the meaning of life. There's a follow-up to that Douglas Adams quote, isn't there? Because later in one of the books, um, he writes that there's a theory that states that if the question, because the book is about the questions, the old, they know the answer, but they don't know the question. If the question to the ultimate answer was ever found, the universe as it exists would immediately disappear and be replaced by something infinitely more explicable and difficult. And there's another theory that states that this has already happened. That's very true, right? The, the deeper we get, the weirder it seems to get. Mm. You know, the, the less like our everyday lives. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're a long way from, the, from the, the scales at which the universe started at, right? And we're a long way from the scale at which it exists today. You know, I mean, we're, we're a very small piece of it. And we're only, I think the more, the more we look into it, the more insignificant we, we feel and seem. But it's not about the answer, is it? It's just the next journey. I'm yeah, quite happy, yeah. quite comfortable with the idea that humans just need somewhere to explore, mentally or physically, and when you find this answer or you discover this continent or you go on this planet, then you're like, okay, I'm bored with that now. Where's the next one? And it doesn't actually matter what the next one is. It just matters that there's another one. 
and it's when we run out of next things to discover that we won't have a meaning of life anymore. So in a way, you could, I, you know, it's you need you need to search for the meaning of life for life to have meaning, but it's all terribly circular. And I think, I mean, your work in particular, looking at, at bubbles, you know, which are kind of you know the things that exist about our scale, you know, also also shows that we're kind of living in the most interesting part. You know, we you know we're living in a in a, in a um, on a length scales that can sustain complexity. It's no accident that we're the scale we are, because this is where complexity and richness exists in the universe, and things sort of get weirder and simpler um, as we go up or down in the scales. Michelle, what do you think? So I think talking about, like, because I'm all about the, I'm an experimentalist, I'm a nanotechnologist by training, and so I look at the tangible and, you know, what can we create now? And I think it's fascinating because in nanotechnology we can create something called a metamaterial. And a metamaterial is where you take atoms and you move them around to places where they wouldn't naturally go and create things that would never exist in nature. And it gets me thinking about, well, now we have, you know, we have SPM, scanning probe microscopes, where we can move atoms around into places that they shouldn't be and force atoms and create structures that would never normally exist in the way that we know it as humans and through... So... What, what can we do next with that? So can we move biological molecules or can we actually create things using what we call life forms, so whether it's water-based, and can we actually create something as a human that we now class as a nut? So I'm all about, like, what could I actually do in my lab? And can we, because I don't, I don't have a spaceship and I can't go out there, and I'm not very good at physics, so I can't do all of that, like, measuring waves going out and coming back and be like, oh, yeah, so there's this planet, like, 60,000 light years away. But I do have nanotechnology machines and manipulators that can pick up atoms and put them into places where they don't want to go normally, and I wonder, can we create things ourselves as humans that we would class as a new type of life form? So science can give your life meaning, but it won't really derive the meaning of life, will it? I'm up for that. I mean, then it depends. Then you get into what you know, what philosophically keeps people going. Um, and I'm just reading Sapiens at the moment, which talks mm. about uh, the myths that human communities need in order to cooperate. Yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, the fact that there is an answer is, might turn out to be a myth that just keeps it all going. And I'm all right with that, yeah. you know, um, because it's far more interesting to be looking. I mean, can you imagine anything more boring than going, right, here we are. Done. Let's all just uh, have a cup of tea now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just can't imagine a time where we will know everything. That. And I, I mean, I know that people through the centuries or through the, the decades of science have thought, right, okay, yeah, Victorian age where we had all these accelerations in science and all this knowledge, and people are getting to the point where they know everything. But that just that doesn't happen. Like, there's always more questions that come about. But even if we knew everything, yeah, I was, I was going to say, do you think you might reach a point where we still know we don't know everything, but we know there's nothing more we can learn? <sighs> well, I know, I don't, I, I don't think so. So, okay, if thinking about, on it, about it from a sort of universal scale, right? The limits of what we can know come through regions we can explore, regions we can't explore, technology, mathematics, limitations. But we're always pushing that forward. You know, there's always there's more light coming in now to the university. Think about travel time, um, so objects that we can see, developments in the telescope that allow us to see further, physical probes travelling further out into the solar system or beyond the solar system now. So we're always that bubble of what we can access is always getting bigger and our technology that we can use to explore that bubble is always getting more sophisticated and therefore that gives us more and more and more data and even if it's not necessarily new discoveries we might be making incremental um, knowledge um, advances around things we already sort of understand there's always I think somewhere that you can go I can't imagine a time where we just go oh yeah that's it well there might be the point where we, our limits mean there is just a level 
we don't even know exists, can never know exists, and therefore we as a limited, small-brained creature in an enormous universe will not be able to make the next step because we don't realise there is another step. I, I mean, I find, you know, the, the discoveries we've made around dark energy, that the universe is accelerating, and we realise there'll be a point where we can't see any other galaxies. Um, and will our, you know, will the generations that come, <laughs> um, they'll, you know, Hopefully, they'll be aware um, that there were once galaxies. Maybe they won't believe us. Um, but even, even the point about galaxies, right? We used to give this number to the number of, um, of galaxies that we could, we could see. But that, I think, recently got... Was it the number of stars? Now I'm forgetting my news stories. But the, maybe it's the number of stars in our galaxy. Oh, my story's going to rapidly fall apart here. But anyway, <laughs> my point was, we thought we had, had observed enough to give ourselves a number and then new technologies come about deeper observations and you you observe more and you're like oh actually there's more stuff out there but that brings it back to douglas adams isn't it because something else that is in the hitchhiker's Mm -hmm. guide to the galaxy is the planet which was surrounded by a an opaque cloud and they evolved and lived and their civilization developed believing that that everything was on the ground and they never bothered looking at the sky and then one day a spaceship came and they all got extremely cross (laughs) and immediately tried to destroy the rest of the universe because it wasn't supposed to be there (laughs) 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 he was very prescient (laughs) let's make it simpler matt is zero a positive number no great that's what i was hoping (laughs) the uh what if only ghosts? What if ghosts only eat canned spaghetti monsters? That says that will mean nothing to anyone listening because that's very specific to uh, Josie Long's ghost research, which she's been doing. So still no ghosts. Five shows in. Um, can you measure pi with the bucket fountain? Have there was a bucket fountain in a town. Where were yeah. we? Oh, in oh, Wellington, oh, there was a bucket oh, fountain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. So Gosh. probably not. I did see the bucket fountain and I was initially interested because there are some very cool fountains, a bit like the bucket fountain, where the water that tips into one bucket reaches a threshold and it tips into another one. But if the thing the buckets are mounted on is able to rotate, you get completely, well, you get largely chaotic behaviour from that system. So you can get chaotic water bucket fountains where it's impossible, you can't predict the future movements of it based on the water flow. Even though you know all the sizes, you know the shape, you know the flow, you have, all the physicists have all the equations, mathematically you cannot predict its future movements because it's a chaotic system. And so I saw the bucket fountain in Wellington and ran up very excited until I realized it was completely explainable um, with normal physics. And so that, then I got a little less interested in it. Could, could, could we have a tiny array of buckets in um, a, a, a spiral? Going down, racing some water um, across the prim- across the diameter. I'm, I don't know, work with me here. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. uh, oh, could you could you still get? So we could we could make a kind of a you know like a like a clock. If we had permission from the council right. to cut apart and reweld yes. their bucket fountain, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. And then yeah. you could float a little boat on top of the water with a pie in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's answered everything. Uh, thank you very much, Helen, Michelle, Sean, Matt, Lucy. That is the final New Zealand podcast of questions. Those are the questions of Wellington. Unfortunately, we will try those who are left when we get to Perth, who will not be Sean, Michelle, or Helen. Uh, we'll cover some of the ones from uh, tonight's show in Christchurch and some of the show, uh, some of the questions from Perth as well. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. <laughs>
Thanks very much for listening and make sure you subscribe on iTunes or RSS or SoundCloud or wherever because we'll have lots more coming up on this, the Science Shambles podcast over the coming months. And be sure to check out all our other programs on the Cosmic Shambles network at cosmicshambles.com. There's lots of podcasts there like Book Shambles and Music Shambles, uh, the Professor Brian Cox Q&A podcast, Speakeasy, plus web series, documentaries, blogs, uh, live events and a whole lot more. And if uh, you do like what you find there, please, uh, if you can, consider making a donation to the network from the PayPal button on the front page, or you can support the Book Shambles Patreon, uh, which all goes towards helping us keep making everything that you'll find on the website for everyone to enjoy for free. Thanks very much, and goodbye.